You're listening to Not The Wifey Type, the podcast, a cape-free zone where we share stories and break down strength and struggle narratives to reimagine lives with us at the center. I'm your host, Kayla Charleston. Now let's get into it. The topic for today is money. And as an adult, I have had to unpack a lot of my beliefs about money due to my upbringing and the things that I didn't learn or didn't know about growing up or the things that I did learn about money growing up. I am a child of a working class single mother. And one thing I applaud her for is never allowing us to feel like we were lacking or we were on the verge of lacking. Even though, as I later found out, she had to make tough decisions about, okay, these utility bills are due and I also need some new tires because these ones I got on my car are bald. Like she was making these tough decisions and I was none the wiser. And I applaud her for, you know, never letting me feel any of the anxiety or, or anything that she must have been feeling, you know, trying to make ends meet and trying to make things work as a single mother of two. But as a kid, there was no extra. So there was no extra and there was no, there were no conversations about saving or investing or, you know, wealth building or anything like that. Because honestly, there was, there was none of that going on. Like, like I said, she was living paycheck to paycheck and having to make these tough decisions. There's no money to talk about accumulating wealth and generating wealth. And when you're just trying to make ends meet. So those conversations were missing from my life. And, um, since there was no extra, as I got older, I found myself having to make my own opportunities for getting what I wanted. So for example, in high school, I wanted a cell phone, but my mom didn't have the money to put me on a plan, you know, and have a monthly bill just so I could have a phone. So what I did was I went to the store, bought cake mix and baked cupcakes. And I bought Tupperware to put the cake, the cupcakes in. And so I would take the cupcakes to school every day and sell them for 50 cents each. And I could do 12, uh, 24 cupcakes in a batch. So I would sell them for 50 cents each and make $12 a day if my classmates weren't stealing cupcakes. Cause I later found out they were stealing cupcakes from me, but anyway, so yeah. And within a week, within a week, I had enough to buy a phone. And then within a, like a few days of selling cupcakes, I had enough to pay my little prepaid monthly bill. I had a go phone. Um, so that was how I got my first cell phone. That was how, and I, to this day, my mom never paid. I've had a cell phone till, since I was like, I don't know, 14. Cause this is before I was old enough to get an actual job. So I've had a cell phone since like 13, 14. And to this day, my mom never has paid, you know, any of my bills, my cell phone bills or anything like that. Same thing with a car. I wanted a car. Um, I worked fast food until I saved up, saved up enough money to buy a car from a little old lady in my grandmother's church. And, you know, I never thought anything of it. I never thought this is something my mom should be able to buy or anything like that. I just figured that's what you do when you want something, you find a way to get it. So growing up in a household where we were living paycheck to paycheck, I realized as an adult, it influenced my some of my scarcity mindset around money and this idea that you shouldn't spend too much money on um you know something that's not a necessity because 
you never know when you're going to have something come up and you don't have enough. Now you don't have enough money to cover it because you've splurged on this other item. So I've had to really, really, really work to unpack that. And it's, it's important for me to acknowledge that a lot of these attitudes around money or the, the position of black people in America in terms of wealth and assets and money is a result of the systems and institutions in place that, you know, were meant to lock black people, black families out of having an equal share of wealth. You know, we were brought here as enslaved, enslaved Africans and kept out of the wealth accumulating and wealth building opportunities that white people have had and used to pass down wealth for generations in their families. So there are, there are going to be wealth disparities. The wealth disparity in, or the wealth gap in 2016 for the average white family, they had a wealth of $919,000, which was $700,000 higher than the average black family's wealth at $140,000. So there are definitely reasons why these disparities exist. And I need to acknowledge that because I don't, I don't really believe in like, people call it like LLC Twitter and grind Twitter, where people believe if you just work hard enough, you can become a millionaire and blah, 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 blah. There are things in place that keep black families from catching up to white families. Like that's a reality. So you can work hard, but it's going to take correcting these systems and institutions for black families on average, on average to catch up. And that's just what it is. However, while I acknowledge that, it's also important for me to acknowledge that there are other possibilities. So I, and I see that in every, my everyday life. So for example, I am in a much different position than my mom was when she was my age. So when she was my age, she had two kids. She was a single mother. And my mom went to college, but she didn't graduate versus me. I don't have any kids and, you know, I have a a terminal degree. So we're in different positions and there are different possibilities available to me as someone who is in a different position than my mother was when she was my age. So for me, it's a both and it's not an either or like, it's very true that these racial wealth gaps and racial wealth disparities exist. And they're in place because institutions lock us in certain positions and preclude us from being able to generate wealth in a lot of ways. But also there are other possibilities like I'm not currently in a paycheck to paycheck situation and I can talk about saving and investing in retirement. So, yes, today's conversation is about money and a little bit about the whole hoopla with GameStop stock and what happened with Robinhood and hopefully listening to it. If if you haven't already started to interrogate your beliefs about money, hopefully listening to it will get you started on that path. Today's guest is Star Malonezone, who is a financial strategist and the CEO and founder of She Building Her. How are you, Star? I'm doing well. How are you? 
I'm great. I'm great. So I like to start our guests off um, by telling us a little bit of their background. And I know you're you were formerly um, a part of corporate America before you were a financial strategist, and you were a biopharmaceutical microbiologist. Please tell us <laughs> what that is. What is that? <laughs> yes, I was. So basically, what uh, my role. I worked for a pharmaceutical or a biopharmaceutical company. And so what I did was I ju- I tested um, raw material for medication. And so, you know, from the research of a medication to the hitting the shelves, there's this long line of processes in the middle. And basically you have to make sure that every single ingredient in the medication is sterile and it's not going to cause harm to the end user. Um and then you have to test the the medication when all the ingredients are put together. You have to test it, you know, for a certain amount of time before it goes to market. And so I used to test the uh, raw materials and then the final products before the medication hit market. And usually for um, um, my my area was usually around cancer medication. Okay. Okay. That sounds really impressive. <laughs> like, wow. Okay. So why did you, so you're obviously not doing that anymore. Um, t- tell us about how that experience was for you in corporate America and how it led to you becoming a financial strategist. Yeah, absolutely. Um, so the experience for me, um, just like off the top of my head was really positive, right? Because I went to school for my undergrad degrees in microbiology. And so I knew that I wanted to go into the field. And so when I got out of college, I landed the job within like six months. So I was really, really excited. Like, I, you know, I was very excited to, you know, and I just felt privileged to be able to walk out of college and then go into my um, field. And so in the beginning, it was it was amazing because I was kind of on a, like a little high, right? Because I almost couldn't believe I did it. <laughs> and then um, while I was there, great people. Um, of course, corporate America has its struggles, right? I was the only Black person. I was definitely the only Black woman. Um, so it was all of those kinds of things. And um, it was a really far commute. I was commuting like five hours a day. It was, it was a girl. It was a lot. It was, <laughs> I don't know if you know anything about San Francisco or South San Francisco or the Bay Area, but traffic in, so first of all, I'm from the San Francisco Bay Area, and this was in South San Francisco. The traffic is just disgusting. It's, it's, I mean, it's not as bad as LA, but it's really, really, really bad. So it was a lot of that kind of stuff going on. But what the transition for me in terms of like going from corporate America and in science into the finance space, which is which was a big leap for me and a big leap of faith for me, um, was that when I was in corporate America, I was surrounded. Well, first of all. Little black girl landed this job making almost two hundred thousand dollars a year. Okay, and in there, white men, Asian men, much older than me. Um, some of them were, you know, within my age range. Um, but a lot of them were a lot older than me. And I used to find myself in these predicaments where I was sitting amongst my peers or what should have been my peers, right? Cause we had the same degree office next door to each other, mo- mostly the same roles making supposedly the same money. Um, but I was just making good money and spending it. And they were like really building wealth. Right. But openly talking about investing in BlackBerry and, you know, like just really investing and 
maxing out their retirement and different ways of growing and saving and, you know, um, just like different kinds of bonds, just all kinds of money conversations all the time, very openly. And I understood probably like 20 to 25 percent of what they said, because that whole conversation was not a part of my upbringing. And Mm -hmm. so in terms of like coming from an HBCU, going into a predominantly white corporate job, being only black person, only black woman, and then they're having these conversations that I don't understand. I just started feeling like super insecure, started feeling super small, like I didn't belong there, like I didn't deserve to be in that space or in the rooms with these people. Um, I was just, it was just a bad situation on my, you know, on my my mental health, I guess you could say, or my emotional health. Um, and I would ask questions and they would answer because they were my friends. It's not like they were mean or anything. But at some point, you know, I had to turn the finger to myself and look in the mirror like, star, like, don't be the statistic, right? Like, they expect you to not know this and you don't. But instead of just focusing on, oh my gosh, I didn't, I wasn't taught this growing up, like, you need to learn it because here you are. This is the position you're in now. And so I just started like, DIYing it like self education, and then I went and got some more like formal education about asset management and wealth management and these kind of things that we don't talk about because we don't often associate wealth and assets and things like this with ourselves. So of course we don't really look into how to manage it because we don't even associate ourselves with that level of wealth. Um, and so I went and just you know really dug into like okay what are what are people what do people know that I don't know. Right. Because I refuse to want to do the little church walk or look like a deer in headlights every time I'm in a conference room eating lunch because I don't want them to ask me a question. Right. Mm-hmm. So um, I just pointed the finger back at myself. I was like, all right, girl, put your big put your big girl draws on, you know, learn it. If you don't want to be the statistic, don't. And so I did that. I started implementing it into my life and it just it literally just changed my life. And so I started doing it, started learning it. Then I started explaining it to people around me, like my sister, my mom, my aunts, my cousins, my friends, and then their friends. And then their, you know, it just kind of grew into this thing where people was like, oh, my God, I understand what you're saying. Like, they were so shocked. Like, I I get it, you know, and then they start implementing it. And then she building her just grew into what it is. Right. She building her. And that was just kind of how that transition happened. And so eventually with all the other things with corporate, I, um, I decided, I, to, I went to my husband, I'm like, look, I don't see my baby. I'm not seeing you. I'm commuting all these hours. They stressing me out. It was all this, the Sandra Bland and like all these things were happening. I was really sad every day going to work, crying my eyes out because of all the racial stuff. Had to get to work, put my lip gloss on, act like nothing happened. Nobody in my office even I felt like they weren't even aware of what was going on, which made it that much worse. I started wearing like the T-shirts. Just It was just a lot inside of me built up. And I was like, you know, I already wasn't fulfilled. I was taking these aptitude tests and they the aptitude test was telling me you're good with numbers and budgeting and teaching and learning. And I'm a full-fledged scientist. I'm like, this, something's not adding up, you know, and they were trying to give me these teaching roles and training roles and corporate. It just wasn't fulfilled. So I was like, babe, I'm I'm leaving. <laughs> he was like, all right, let's write out the plan, wrote out the plan and executed it. And now here I am full time in my business. And now who you are. So I feel like you said a few things that people, uh, uh, especially my audience can relate to um, being the only, first of all, the only black person 
in general in your in your company? That's wow. Ninety oh, percent so. the only black woman, but the only black person. Wow. Not not <laughs> in my company because this is a huge company. Oh, right? Okay. On okay. Campus. It was twelve hundred people on my campus where I worked. Right. Oh, okay. So it was just in my little five division department area. Yeah. Exactly. Okay. My little okay. few buildings that I was working between. And then the other thing, oh, so the lack of um, like knowledge or conversations about money growing up, that's something I know I personally can relate to. We didn't talk about money at all. Like IRA, what's that? Retirement <laughs> savings, what's that? So um, that's something I think that a lot of people, a lot of Black women especially can um, uh, relate to is like the lack of these money conversations and what it means to build wealth or, uh, you know, what how to... Um, use your money in a way that's going to work for you. So what I want to ask you, what made you decide to uh, focus on women and women of color specifically with your um, financial strategist business? So uh, I think a couple things made me focus on women. One is, I don't know, that's what I had a passion for. And that's what I was nat- naturally drawn to. And I felt like a lot of women were able to resonate with the way I was delivering the information and they had some of the same struggles and even like balancing life. Right. Because sometimes it's just different for men and women when it comes to just balancing life in general. Um, and so I think I was just kind of communicating the information in a way that women were resonating with, which is not uncommon. Right. But, um, and then all uh, additionally, I did have some instances where I tried to kind of extend it to men. First of all, they don't receive information the same way. But secondly, I found that it was also like a little bit of a, sometimes it can get a real weird dynamic because Mm -hmm. when I work one-on-one with women and money, money is very, I'll tell people all the time, money is more intimate than sex. If Mm -hmm, you can think mm -hmm. about the number of sexual partners you've had, versus the number of partners you've had that you've shared a bank account with or given access to your money, you're going to find that the money portion, you have far less people in that category. Right. You know? And so when I'm, when I'm in these intimate spaces, because we are intimate with one another talking about, um, your money and along comes traumas that you've dealt with, things that you need to unlearn, reasons that you have a scarce mindset versus an abundant mindset, you know, financial abuse that happens to people. It's so many things that come up, right? Because the first couple of sessions are usually like almost therapy sessions because a lot of women are just looking to unpack all that stuff to someone who's not going to judge them, you know? And by the time you're in that position with me, you understand like, I leave with my heart on my sleeve. I'm the, like, I tell people all the time, like we looking through the windshield, not the rear view mirror. You know what I mean? Like a hundred percent. So whatever you've done, it doesn't even really matter. Right. Because it's only up from here. That's what I say. It's only up from here. So when you get into these intimate situations with men and they're able to express all this to you, sometimes they're like, oh my God, you're the first woman I've ever been able to open up to. And you got to be like, wait, uh, <laughs> like, uh, but this is my job. You know, this is, <laughs> this, this is what I do. So like when a woman says it, you know, women connect on a soul level all the time and we're able to be vulnerable and intimate with each other like that. And it will form this bond between us, but it's not like a weird bond, you know, it's like a <laughs> genuinely sisterly bond, but you don't have to question what else is going on. And so sometimes with men in those very intimate spaces, it gets a little 
a little different. And so I was like, yeah, I probably should just, you know, <laughs> just <laughs> stick with it. Yeah. You know, so that's kind of how the, the women thing came about. And then, of course, when you say of color, it really started with just black women. I'm not going to lie to you. Like my platform started teaching black women because I'm a black woman. Um, and eventually I found just by having this, like opening up my business onto social media, I found that a lot of women go through this, that, that, you know, a lot of women were not taught about it that are not black. You know, a lot of women are dealing with a lot of the same things. Um, and so, of course, I'm inclusive, right? But mm -hmm. I can tell you that initially it started me just want to educate Black women. And if you look back on my page, I use Black women in green garments mm -hmm. on it with my imagery and my branding. Because one thing I found is that there you're rarely going to type in IRA or 401k in Google and find a black woman's photo attached to those terms. And so I made it a really, really like strategic point to always put black women on my imagery attached to these terms. So, hey, at the very least, if you Google this, maybe it'll pop up and we can start normalizing seeing black girls in a power suit, a black woman with a hijab, a black girl in some booty shorts and some J's. Like we're all what wealth looks like. Mm -hmm. Like, don't think it looks like A, B, or C. Like, we're all a representation of abundance and wealth and prosperity. And so, like, let, let us represent in that way. You know what I mean? Like, attach our faces to that so that when people are looking for it, they can start seeing us in that light, too. So that was a long explanation. <laughs> but that is, <laughs> that is how I got to, like, the women specifically and then the women of color. I love it. So let's talk. So I know right now there are a lot of people who are going through some like tough times since the pandemic has interrupted people's working and, you know, people might be relying on stimulus checks or whatever. Can you give us, since you are a financial strategist, can you give us uh, or talk to us a little bit more about tips for people who want to make their money go a little bit further? Yeah, absolutely. So well, first of all, so she building her is a financial consulting agency, right? So we we specialize in helping women um, create strategic plans to reach their short and long term financial goals because you have a different plan for short term goals versus long term goals. Um, but we do it in a way of budgeting, saving money, paying back debt, planning for retirement, and then stock market investing. So buy and hold long term stock market investing. Um, and so I I always say in terms of the fastest way to get like financial wellness or whatever you want to call it, like financial, being financially responsible, the fastest way to get it put on somebody's to-do list and it never get to done is by trying to tackle it all at one time, right? Because it's just not, it's just too much. Um, so I always say like focus on one area first, one or two areas first. Um, and so my baby, my passion, even though the stock market is obviously my passion, Every, I always tell people every, you know, investment plan starts with a budget. So budgeting is really, really like, in my opinion, the core, 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 um, the key to any kind of successful financial anything. And so I would encourage people to Google what a zero-based budget is, right? Google what a zero-based budget is, create you a zero-based budget. Don't create your budget around what you should be doing, right? Like, oh, I should be saving a million dollars a month. Let me just put that in my budget. Like, no, you're not going to say, you know, like if you're not saving now, don't put that you're about to save a million dollars a month in your, your budget. Like, a, but the point of a budget is not to judge you. 
is simply to account for where your money is going, right? So that you can visually see what, you know, I can be accountable to my money. And then as you go, a budget will turn into a tool that will help you tell your money what to do instead of you being a slave to your money. Because if every time your money comes in, you got, you're like, okay, well, I'm gonna have the lights, the gas, the the trash, the mortgage or the rent, the car insurance, the car payment, my cell phone bill, my internet bill. If all of these people are dipping your hands, their hands inside your account and taking their money on whatever day you set up your payment plan, you like a slave to the money. Like you go to work, you get your money, it goes into your account and everybody just say, oh, she got paid. Let me dig my hand in there and take it out, right? You basically working for them at that point. So instead, what a budget allows you to do is see where is my money? Money going? What is going on here? How much am I spending in these different places? What's what's falling between the cracks, right? So that you can eventually say, okay, pause. Let me get one separate account for paying bills. I'm not going to allow them to come into my account. I'm going to go into my account and schedule a transfer from my account to the company. And so that I take control of what's happening with my money. I'm giving you my money versus you putting your hand in my account and snatching it out because you want to do that, right? So it just, a budget allows you to restructure how you and your money are, are having a relationship, right? I'm telling my money what to do. I'm giving these companies the money or, you know what I mean? Like I'm in control of what's happening versus everything else, right? So I would just always encourage people, Google what a zero-based budget is. On my Instagram account, I have, I don't even know how many IGTV videos about it, a million. Go watch it, figure it out, get you a zero-based budget and start budgeting, right? And then the next thing is start investing, period. Like start investing. I don't care if Dave Ramsey told you you need to be out of debt first. I don't care what, uh, um, what's the other one? What's her name? I can't remember the woman's name. Jo- not Joyce Myers. What's her name? Um, Susie Orman. Yeah, yeah, I don't care what Susie Orman say that you need to pay off your student loans first or what's the point? Listen, of- I ain't never paying them off. Okay. Okay. Sorry. Trauma. <laughs> Girl, I'm like, listen, I don't care what these people telling you that you need to pay off all this debt, blah, blah, blah. Yeah. You do need to pay off your debt, but don't pay off the debt and make all the financial institutions rich before you sow a seed for yourself. So start investing and make your money grow without you having to work for it. So those would be my two things. Okay, so you mentioned investing. I want to, and we've also talked a a little about um, not having money conversations growing up. So I want to talk a little bit about um, the mindset shift that has to happen to go from consumer to investor. So what what kind of things do you think have to shift to start seeing yourself as not just a consumer, but also an investor? So one exercise... It's a couple things, right? So first of all, you gotta be, you gotta be at one at some point, you gotta be uh, sick and tired of being sick and tired, right? Because the reality is, income disparities are real, mm-hmm. wealth disparities and wealth gaps are real, right? A lot of people are living paycheck to paycheck. Most Americans can't cover a four hundred dollar expense, right? Like all this stuff is real, right? People mm-hmm. are in debt, all this stuff. So at some point, like you have to. So let's go back. When I say we didn't have money conversations growing up, we had money conversations, but they were like, money don't grow on trees. Mm-hmm. They were these very limiting, scarce, scarcity mindset type of conversations, right? So 
what you think, you know, what you think, you know, like it just like all kind of things that make you feel like money is limited in the world, right? It's not a lot of it. So you better work extra, extra hard to make every dollar and hold on to your money because you don't know the next time you're going to get some. Basically, that's what was bred into us. So I guess I should say we didn't have healthy money conversations, right? We didn't have abundant money conversations. We have very mm-hmm. scarce money, right? So the first thing is you got to un- unpack and unlearn. So unpack some of these things, write down. Um, so I always send people through these writing exercises, right? Like first, okay, what was your first introduction to money? Like when is the first time you realized money was more than just a piece of paper or a piece of monopoly money, right? When was the first time you realized that money, you could trade money for some kind of goods or services or that you needed it to function in the world? Like try to think back earliest. Maybe it was your first time going to a drive through or the first time you asked for something outrageous and your mom was like, oh, you're going to get a job or, you, you know, like it could be any of these things. So like go through these things. When was your first introduction to money, right? Then if you have a thing, like I have people who tell me, well, I never wanted to create a budget because, you know, I have a lot of brothers and sisters. And when I was young, anytime I would get any money, I was afraid to let people know how much money I had because I knew that I was going to have to share it with my brothers, my sister, my mom, whatever. You know, I got people that's like, oh, I spent my hard earned money on my favorite thing and then came, you know, put it under my bed and then it just disappeared. Right. Mama then took it, sold it and you don't know what happened to it. And they like it traumatizes people. Right. So people behave differently with different money. So you need to figure out, all right, do you have any past traumas? All right. So if you do, let's write those down. Let's figure out like why you feel this anxious feeling when it comes to budgeting or looking at your finances or answering the phone for a debt collector. Like let's figure out why you get this anxious feeling, write it down. Then, okay. Do you have any things that you're ashamed of? Most people do, right? I, I took out, you know, um, payday loans and I shouldn't have, or I took out payday loans and never paid them back. Or, you know, I'm, I'm 50 years old and I'm still renting or 40 years old and I'm still renting and everybody else around me owns a home. Mm-hmm. You know, I feel like I should be on a level or vice versa, or my credit is terrible or all these things people feel ashamed of. Write it down get it out your body. Cause as long as you harbor it in there, like the deep, dark secret that it is, it's going to tear you apart, write it down, fold it up, put it in a shoe in the back of your closet, right? Or you can burn it. I like to put it in a shoe because when those insecure feelings creep back up, I'll go pull it out. Look at all my traumas and my, my embarrassing stuff. Okay. And then I will, I will be able to recognize, recognize like, oh yeah, I was right the first time you don't belong though. You don't belong inside of me. These thoughts and feelings do not have, I don't have space in my heart, in my soul for these negative feelings and emotions. So then I just fold it back up and put it back where it belongs, which is on the shelf away from me and not inside of me, you know? And so I just think like the mindset part is like a lot of, I journal, obviously (laughs) a lot of it is just writing down and getting to know yourself. What is my money like? How do I behave with money? Do I have anxiety when I get a large lump sum of money? Am I the person that I find out I'm about to get a large lump sum and I'm up all night with my notebook writing out all the stuff I'm going to pay or what I'm going to do with the money? Or am I a person that feels worthy of having money sitting in the bank without it having to do anything? You know, like it's a lot of journaling and unpacking, unlearning so you can make room for the fresh, new, abundant, prosperous air that you're about to breathe in, you know, so you can open up 
your mind to everything that God has for you that you deserve. You know what I mean? But you got to get rid of all that stuff that the devil is trying to, or I don't know how spiritual, but you know, you got to get rid of all that stuff that's not for you. Yes, I really, uh, I really love that. So I love that you can acknowledge that there, you know, wealth gaps exist and people are in tight situations, but also that there are things that we can do to kind of reorient ourselves to not just being a victim of circumstance. There are still things that we can do to kind of have more control, I guess, mm-hmm. in a way. Yeah. So and I hate really that good. we're empowered, but yes, you have to empower yourself when it comes to your money. You know what I mean? Mm-hmm. Period. Mm-hmm. Like that is your responsibility. So what would you do? You, would you have any suggestions or tips for people who are beginners in investing or who may not have a ton of money to um, invest right now in this particular moment with all this stuff going on? So I'm going to tell you the one thing that people not, a lot of people probably not going to like that I say, I say, stay away from options trading, stay away from day trading, stay away from swings, swing trading, stay away from these kind of fast money ways of investing, right? Because when you think about investing in the stock market, it all happens in the same place, but a lot of people do a lot of different things when they get there, right? So for me, I'm a strategic long-term buy and hold investor. Some people are, like I said, day traders, swing traders, options traders, right? So this is like the buy low, sell high, covered calls. When you hear all these terms that are thrown out there, uh, when people are just are are trying to make active income from the stock market, like it almost becomes their job, right? Because they're going in there and doing transactions that make them money. Are they making money? Yes, they are, right? But a person who's very new, that's a beginner, who doesn't have a ton of money to start investing with anyway, like I would not suggest that you go into it in that way. So I would say the first thing is, be, you know, try to approach it at least initially until you really get your feet wet as like a long-term investor. So that way you don't even really have to think about when to sell the stock. You just think about what you're going to buy. And when I started, um, when I started investing, I was making a lot of money, but I would only invest $20 a week because I was scared. Right. And so, um, this is how I did it. I went through my house I was like, what type of cereal do I buy? What kind of juice do I buy? What kind of phone do I have? What kind of car do I have? What kind of laundry detergent do I buy? Tissue do I buy? What kind of markers do I buy? What kind of purses do I buy? What kind of shoes do I buy? And I just made this long list because in my mind, I'm already investing in these companies and I already believe in these companies because I buy their products to use on me and my family. Right. Mm -hmm. I must think that Charmin is a good company because I continue to buy it. Right. So obviously they're doing something right with the consumer. So I'm like, all right, well, I'm already investing in these companies because I buy their products. The only thing left is for me to get a return on my investment, meaning the company pay me. So I made this long list and then I said, okay, I'm only going to invest $20 a week. So I would go to Google and I would Google, does Charmin tissue have stock? And it would say yes or no. And if it said yes, I would say, okay, how much is it? If it was like, oh, it's $34.25. All right, I'm going to put that on my to-do list because I'm only investing $20, right? And then I would say, okay, does Fruit Loops have stock? And yes or no. And it's yes, okay, the stock is like $9. All right, to-do list. I'm going to do that today because I could spend $9. And I would just go down my list and I would have a to-do list and a buy list. 
right? And so I would just slowly start spending. I would spend $20. I was like, okay, well, I could buy one Charmin because it's $9 and one of this because it's $11. That's my little $20 for the week. And I would just buy one share each. Then the next week, I would do the same thing. Then next month, maybe instead of buying all new companies, I would go back over my old companies and just buy one more share of each as the month, you know? And I just did it like that. And then one day, you know, because I'm not worrying about selling it, right? I'm just holding it. So I would just do it, buy it, and just really not check in on it too much. Uh, and then one day I just looked at it and I was like, wow, you know, I've made some money. Like, mind you, it, even if it was like, I made like $30, $40, it was $30, $40 I didn't have to work for, right? And then I ended up buying like some stock that was like $3 or something. And I woke up one day and it was like $165. And I was like, whoa. And it just kept going, right? And now I spend a lot of money in the stock market, but I just was like, all right, well, what if I buy a hundred dollars worth? <laughs> you know, like let's see what's gonna happen. And then five hundred, two dollars. You know, I just kept going like that. And I've never had a year where I lost money in terms of so of course it goes up and down on a daily basis. The value, right, goes up and down on a daily basis, weekly basis. But at the end of the year, I've never had a year where I invested, you know. $20 and, you know, had less than, less than my $20 in there. You know what I mean? Like I was like, all right, at the end of the year, if I invested $20 at the end of the year, if I still had that $20, I was like, well, shit, this is like a savings account. At least I still got my 20. Right. But if at the end of the year I had $60, now I'm doing something. Cause I put 20 in there, didn't do nothing. Now I got an extra $40. Right. So it was just like that. And even if like some of my companies was doing kind of bad, I'll have other companies that's doing good. And so it always just balances out. And so after I learned that I was like, I'm never going back because I have never found a way that was easier to make money than this. So as a new investor, that's what I suggest. Make a list, figure out how much, if you're going to invest $20 a week, cool. You know, get you whatever you got. If it's Cash App, if it's Robinhood, if it's E-Trade or Fidelity or Charles Schwab, whatever you have, whatever brokerage account you have, right? You have to connect your regular bank account to your brokerage account. And that's how you fund the stock purchases. And so you connect them and then you spend a little $20 a month or $20 a week or $50 a week or whatever you're going to do. Just do something, invest in companies that you know of. Don't allow social media to be like, this is amazing, but you don't even really like, not only do you not know the fundamental stock stuff, but you really don't know nothing about this company. And so everything that glitter ain't gold. Okay. Everything that's good for the goose ain't good for the get right. Like just have discernment and start with stuff that you recognize that you already buying and just, just rock out like that until you get more comfortable and more comfortable and more comfortable. And, you know, eventually you'll see what's, what's better than this. Like what literally what's better than this. there's nothing better. Right. Cause we can't, we don't have enough hours in our life to trade our time for money to be wealthy. Right. Nobody can save their way into being wealthy. Right. We just don't have enough time. Not the average person. You said it. Most most wealth is inherited. So there you go. There we go. And so when you think of in terms of like, what can I do with my money to grow it? Right. A lot of people are like, get a side hustle, get a business, you know, add more products to my business, market better. Like, no, that's all still earned income. Right. Like, how are you going to grow the money that you already have coming in without trading even more time and more effort and more energy and more hours? What, what, how can you just grow it? And then you look at there's not that many avenues. Right. There's the stock market. There's real estate. There's 
cryptocurrency. And then there's like venture capitalism, which is like investing into smaller businesses. Those are really the only paths that you have to grow money without working for it. And all of those require some form of something, credit, capital, whatever. But the stock market, you don't have to have no minimum credit score, no minimum deposit, no minimum amount of money. Like you, it, it's literally there's nothing easier than the stock market to grow money. Well, that was great. Those were some digestible tips on how to get started if you're a beginner. And you mentioned that you're interested in buying stock and holding it for the long term. But I'm aware of um, some things that were happening recently with short sellers Can you and, and GameStop. So can you say a little bit about what that whole big to-do was? Absolutely. Okay. So I think it's important first to understand what the difference is um, in short selling a stock versus like investing in a stock a when you're investing in a stock is because you believe that the value of that company is going to increase or appreciate over time whether it's a little bit of time or a lot of time but you believe that um for some reason maybe they have a new product maybe they um, have a new ceo maybe they have a new you know branding they have something going on that you feel um, that that company is going to be sustainable and profitable long term. So that's what investing in a stock means. You buy the stock and then you own it in your portfolio as an asset that you own, right? Because a stock is just a little piece of equity in, in a company. So that's what investing is. When it comes to short selling, the idea is kind of the, the inverse, right? So you short sell a company because you believe that that company is going to... Um, the value of the stock is going to decrease, right? So you basically, you don't buy the stock from the, bro like you don't go into your brokerage account and buy the stock. You actually just borrow it from the brokerage account and then you sell it to someone. You find a seller, you sell it for the current value that you borrowed it at. And then you wait for that price to go, uh, for the price of that stock to go down, right? You buy it at a lower price because you've already sold the one that you borrowed. So you buy it at a lower price and then you return the stock that you borrowed back to the brokerage account. So that's how short selling works. And so you can imagine that the, um, like the, you're kind of betting on the fact that the company is going to do bad. So in the case of investing, you think it's going to do good and you want to be a part of that and you want to benefit from that. You kind of, when it comes to short selling, you're kind of scoping out companies whose stock has um, fallen or declined in value consistently over time. And that's what GameStop is, right? So over the last 10 years, the value of the company and the value of the stock um, have declined, you know, pretty consistently. So short sellers like GameStop was one of the companies that, um, was short sold the most on the US uh, stock market, right? Because they have proven to us that they are in trouble financially and they're likely not going to recover. And so short sellers have been um, doing the short sale process with GameStop forever. So what happened with, uh, la you know, recently in the stock market or whatever, it, it was kind of like a situation where this community um, on social media, on Reddit, the Reddit app, if you're familiar, this community on this uh, Reddit app kind of got together and created this strategy and said, hey, we're going to kind of like beat the big guy, right? We know because you can see how many shares of a company is being held at a, at a short position or being shorted, okay? So all of this is public information. So basically, these people got together and said, we're going to create a strategy 
And because we know that there's a few companies, a handful of companies, it turned out to be, I think, 13 companies that are being shorted by these big hedge funds um, at like a, a radical rate, meaning there are a lot of outstanding short uh, positions in this stock. And because they only make money when the price go da- goes down, we're going to go and buy the stock because when people buy, right, when the demand is up, the value goes up. So now what happens is with the people who short sell, it does not matter if they are able to sell that that stock that they borrowed at the value or not. They have to buy a, buy a share of whatever they borrowed and give it back to the brokerage, period. Whether they lose money or gain money, they have to buy a share to return to the brokerage. They are just banking on the fact that they're going to be able to buy the share at a lower price. But now if you have these people come in, buy, 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 drive the price up, those short sellers still have to go and buy that stock to return it to the brokerage, right? So it just so happens that instead of them making money, they lost money because they were they were hoping that the price went down and it started to go up. And so it, it was like a whole strategy um, of these people. And it really is a testament to, you know, how the stock market is changing and how um, stagnant and complacent Wall Street has been just kind of, you know, they've been making money like this for so long that they just took it as a given until somebody came in and was like, oh, you know what? You know, almost like a video game. Like, I know how to beat the system. You know, I know the cheat code. And so they just used the cheat code and it just happened to be thousands or a million people that did it that really drove that price up. And so all these hedge funds that were holding it at a short position, they end up having to buy the stock anyway, along with the people who bought it to drive the price up. And so it was just a big mess. And so that's kind of like, I know that's a long explanation, but that is like the the meat and potatoes of what happened. No, that makes sense. And it's really interesting. And they have been running the stock market in the same way for years and years. So I was just wondering, and this is all speculation, of course, you you probably don't have a way of knowing this, but do you think this will change the way the market looks for people who are investing or what is what are the implications of this? And also, if I, if I might add, also, so, sorry, um, I also heard that the Robinhood app were stopping people from buying additional shares of GameStop. So like, what are the implications? What do you think are the implications of this whole thing, the Robinhood app, keeping people from buying shares Mm -hmm. and, you know, this disruption of the system that they've been running for the same way for so long? Um, So I'm going to answer that in two two parts, right? We'll deal with the Robinhood app separately. Um, In terms of how this has shaken up the system, I, I mean, obviously it is all speculation, but I would assume, well, I think it's important to understand one thing first. This uh, like phenomenon that happened with GameStop and that is trying to happen with ANC, Nokia, BlackBerry, these different companies, even some of the uh, crypt- cryptocurrency. But um, this phenomenon, I like to explain it as like not real, because even though people are really making money from it, right, um, the va- GameStop stock is not actually valued at this really high $350 to $500 value. That is not a real value for that stock. Because if you think about it, a stock is valued based on the value of the company. And and GameStop and BlackBerry and all these companies have come out and said, hey, 
we don't have any new product. Our sales weren't amazing. You know, we're there's nothing to indicate that your share is going to be worth more um, based on anything that's happened with our company. So this, the value of GameStop is only as it is um, because of this strategy that they've executed, you know, via this online community. So I think it's really important to understand that. So don't think that, um, you know, and this is only in the day trading community, right? This is not in the long-term communities. It's only in the day trading community and the short selling community. And so I, I think it's really, really important for people to understand that this that has happened is not an indication that somehow you can just create value in the stock market and make money from nothing, right? Like you can in the short term, but it's just not a sustainable situation, right? Because it, I'm going to say that it is a, it is manipulation, um, but I don't want to say it, it, it's manipulation as though that they did something wrong because they did not. They were just very smart. It was just, it was very smart. And it is something that has been going on for a while, just happens that, this kind of manipulation usually happens to the benefit of the wealthy versus the average investor. So don't think that the stock market has miraculously changed and now you can just make money appear in the stock market because from this GameStop situation, somebody is going to take an L. Okay, we don't know who it is yet. I mean, the hedge funds obviously are losing money. A lot of them are going to be out of business. I do want to also like kind of shed a little bit light, like hedge funds are these big capital driven companies that invest in really volatile, risky situations because they have a big reward, they have a big risk, big reward. But I do want to, to note that, you know, some of the, some of these hedge funds invest for veterans, you know, they invest for like their clients are not always just huge, big billionaires. Sometimes it's a lot of veterans that get together and they invest in these, you know, they uh, invest and allow these hedge funds to invest with their money. And so you got to understand that all of this is real. It's not a video game. People are actually losing money. Some of them can't afford to lose it. And some of them can't afford to lose it, but still are going to lose. Right. And then some people who deserve to have made money a long time ago are finally making money. So all all of it is happening, but it is a real situation in real life and it's real money. But because they have manipulated this stock and some people are not well versed and they're going on Instagram seeing, oh, I should buy it. I should buy it. Um, they're seeing this frenzy. They buy it and they might, you know, it appears that they make money, but they're also not experienced investors and so they don't they don't know when to pull out. Right. And so because they don't know how, when to pull out, a lot of these people are going to be kind of caught with their pants down because they are going to hold these shares longer than they should. And they're going to be the ones that take the L. And unfortunately, it's going to be some people like, you know, you and I, who are you know, just average investors who kind of got on the bandwagon, not knowing what to do and held out and thought it was going to continue to climb and it'll go down to its real value, which is under $20. Right. And so that is going to happen. And some people are going to take a loss. So I want to be clear about that. But in terms of how Wall Street is going to respond, A, we saw that they did respond by, you know, I mean, it's being denied um, avidly, but, you know, they did re respond by putting in a call, placing a call to some of these brokerages that they hold a lot of assets in saying, hey, you need to do something to correct this because it's costing billions of dollars. So that's one thing that they did. But I think also, you know, it it is going to weed out it's, it's kind of going to come to this point, even in Wall Street, even with hedge fund managers, even with, you know, the people who society looks to as strategic, really good investors that they can follow. Uh, it's going to kind of weed out the people who are actually strategic and the people who are just kind of 
riding the wave of what it's been and able to make money from it. Because this that happened, it can happen over and over and over and over again. And so you're going to have to come and have a true strategy to, you know, to, to, to give your clients to say, you know, this is why you can trust what I'm doing. So I do think it's going to disrupt some things. I think a lot of Wall Street people are going to kind of be on their ass, you know, a little bit. And they're going to get, you know, they're going to get burned. They're going to learn their lesson, but they're going to have to realize, oh, okay, I can't just rely on what my dad, my grandfather, my great grandfather taught me about investing. I need to actually get in there, understand the numbers and and have a plan A, a plan B and a plan C. Because that's what that's what the, the little guy is doing, right? The little guy is looking by any means necessary to make some money. And so, you know, it's just that's just kind of how that's gonna happen. Mm-hmm. And then so, yeah, and then the Robin Hood app, yeah. Yeah. So the Robin Hood app, and I, my perception is gonna be a little different than probably what you've seen on social media, is actually mm-hmm. I actually had to go get off of social media because I was in so many um debates about this <laughs> and it was kind of starting to drain my energy but mm-hmm. i think it's really really important to understand a couple things one thing is Robinhood is not the only um that they're not the only brokers that did that uh td ameritrade charles schwab Webull, like there's a ton of institutions or brokerages that restricted the, these particular 13 companies, which included GameStop and AMC, Nokia, BlackBerry, um, Bath and Body Works, you know, Express and some of these different companies, right? All of these brokerages did the same thing. I think what's happening here with Robinhood, and I, I have three points to make, so please bear with me, but I think what's happening with Robinhood is A, the 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 demographic that Robinhood markets to, which mm-hmm. is lower income minorities, women, people who are tradi- have traditionally been left out of the investing game, um, they market to those people. So that's going to be a big bulk of their users, right? And so those mm-hmm. users are used to, for lack of a better word, being done wrong by these other institutions, right? But when it comes to Robinhood, it's like Robinhood is supposed to be on the side of the people, the little investors, you're supposed to rock with us, right? And so even though all these institutions did the same thing, everybody is pointing their their guns at Robin Hood. And I think it's just because people feel, you know, slighted. They feel like out of all the institutions, you were not supposed to do this because you told us that you were for us. And on top of that, Robin Hood is the smallest, right? They're not even public yet. So Robin Hood is one of the smaller of the brokerages. And so mm-hmm. they have a lot less liquid capital to cover this volatile situation because the brokerage is responsible for putting up money, their money to cover these trades, right? They have to do that. And that is a part of regulation from the SEC, which is the Security Exchange Commission. This regular, you know, they are being regulated by just the same way everyone else is, but they're the underdog. They're the little guy, you know, when it compares to them and Charles Schwab and TD and Fidelity and different institutions like this, right? So I think it's important to understand like, the value that Robinhood brings to especially communities like ours, right? Before mm-hmm. Robinhood came along and everybody adopted their business model like two years ago in 2019, you could not go in and buy a $100 stock and just pay $100. You were, you were paying commissions and fees on top of it, right? And so what I try to explain to my community is if you think about it, a lot of time you had, if you wanted to buy, you know, trade like $100 worth of share or something, you had to pay a $10 commission for it. The stock market in general, only like the safe 
thing to say is that you'll yield 10%. So that means if I invest $100 in a year, at the end of the year, I'll have $110, right? So that means to buy that, before Robinhood came along, to buy that $100 share, you will have to give up your entire year okay, of returns just to buy the stock. And these companies were doing this for decades. Robinhood came along and said, hey, we're going to make it into an app, make it super user-friendly. We're going to um, market to women, to millennials, to low income, to people of color. We're going to make it easy for you. We're not going to charge you any fees, any commissions, all of these things. And then we're going to get everybody super excited and let you feel like you have a seat at the table when it comes to investing. Like they really changed things, right? And they really made investing accessible to people like you and I, okay? So I just want to make it clear that you need, you really need to think about a couple things like they Robinhood is the underdog when it comes to the rest of the institutions. Robinhood has brought so much value into people's lives. Robinhood is the the sole reason that most of these people are even investing that invested in this GameStop, right? And so for all of their energy and frustration to be geared at this one company who's brought so much value to their lives is misguided. That's the very like first thing that I want to say. The second part of it, I also want to say is I think it was a liquidity issue, right? Like I think Robinhood did not have enough liquid capital to cover the trades that were happening at the value that it was happening at. But they can't come out and say, hey, we don't have the liquid to cover it because they are going public in 2021. And how are they going to get investors if they come out and say they don't have the money? You know what I mean? So it's like all of this politics that's going on in it. Um, and of course, in addition to that, they had some big people call in like, hey, we're heavily invested in your company. You're going public this year. If you want our backing, you need to stop it. Right. So a part of it was them covering their assets, which is their big investors and hedge funds and stuff. Um, but a part of it is also these other things. So I'm not on the let's shoot Robin Hood. I hope they go out of business bandwagon because I believe that people telling people to stop using Robin Hood is irresponsible because half the people who are using it, they are thinking to pull their money out. If you pull your money out, you lose all of your, you may lose on a lot of the investments you have. You are going to be taxed on that money. Like it's so many things that are not being said. You know, and and then on top of that, a lot of times if you, a lot of these people close out the Robin Hood, they may mm -hmm. never go back to investing. It just is it's it's a whole thing. So that was a long drawn out <laughs> statement, but that's where I'm at with it. Yeah, and a definitely a perspective that I hadn't seen. I had only seen people berating Robin Hood. So, um, but do you? So do you think? I just, I do want to ask also. Do you think that there are implications for? Um, this system that's supposed to be a free market, you know, when when institutions start to restrict what you can buy and, and what you can't buy? Um, yes, I do. Like, I think something is going to change, right? I don't know what that something is. I think something is going to change. But I think that we have to understand that, first of all, like Robinhood is a private company. Charles Schwab is a private company. TD is a private company. And I say private, not that like, TD and, and, and Charles Schwab are both publicly traded, but they are private companies because they are owned, right? These are not federal institutions or state-run institutions. And so it's kind of like, you know, kind of like when Twitter silenced Donald Trump, everybody was like, how could they have the right to silence the, the president of the United States? It's like, because they're a private company and you play by their rules when you walk into their house. And so Robinhood and all these other brokerages, they are private companies. So they have the rights to do whatever is going to benefit them and their company and their assets, right? And so in that term, like, I know a lot of people are very upset as though these companies are like 
federally run companies or we have a right to, you know, or they don't have the right to do certain things when they do have the right, right? And so I think that, but then I think we also need to be careful when I know a lot of like uh, pol- politicians and stuff is like, you know, it's supposed to be free trade. You know, we need to let launch an investigation and, you know, lawsuits and things like that. And I do think something needs to be done in terms of like, hey, when the little guy starts getting ahead, you cannot just block us like that. Like what Robin Hood should have done is they should have prevented people from buying and selling. Because what happens is when you're buying it is making the hedge funds lose money because the price is going up. But when you're selling, it it allows the, the price to come down, right? And so they are losing less money. So if they would have prevented buying and selling of the, of the stock or, you know, those companies, it would have really even the playing field. If they were saying, look, it's volatile, we're just going to shut everything down as it pertains to this company until we can figure out how to move forward, that would have been one thing. But since they only prohibited the buying, it was kind of like, okay, now obviously, your interest is with the big guys, right? And so I think it's like, yes, something is going to happen, but we need to be careful of wanting the regulators to to step in, wanting the politicians and the lawsuits and stuff like that. Because as much as we want them to fight for our rights as the little guys for it to be a free market, it can have other consequences that we don't, that we're not anticipating because everything is fueled by capital, politicians, lawsuits, everything. And we're not the ones that hold the keys to the, to the money. You know what I mean? And so you don't know how, like, it might seem like, oh yeah, we won, but then there's all this subtext that's really in favor of these larger companies and corporations, you know? So it's, it's a really weird thing. You know, it's a really weird thing. I think Robinhood misstepped, like I said, they should have shut down both, but I, I don't know if I really want like regulators to step in or anything like that, because it could be more detrimental to us as small investors. Um, than the big, the bigger guys. This is one thing I like to ask all my guests at the end. What is one book or resource that has been formative for you? So, and it could be, um, since you're a financial strategist, um, if there's some resource that was really helpful for you or that you think would be really helpful for folks out there who are listening. You know, honestly, for me, and this is so, in, like, for me, I would say my my greatest resource is my mentors. Mm. Like, you know, you can only DIY things and Google things so far um, or, you know, to get you so far, right? Because when you Google something, you get 27 pages of everybody's perspective. So sometimes you have to find someone or a group of someone that you can kind of that their delivery resonates with you. Because I always say, especially in terms of finance and investing, none of us are really reinventing the wheel. Find somebody that you can trust, that you can resonate with, that you can latch on to that could take you further, right? So for me, you know, I Googled and I DIY'd it. Um, and this is in my, like, starting a business. This is in investing. This is in all of it. Um, but I feel like I never, I didn't really get my stride and I wasn't able to go further faster um, until I really found mentors that I trusted that I could you know, that I could connect with. And my mentors in the stock market is three old white guys. And <laughs> and it's so it's so weird every time I think about it because I'm like, you know, sometimes it's a little awkward, right? Like it could get a little awkward because I'm the little black girl in the room. Um, but, you know, them, they, those people, they don't see black, they don't see white, they don't see male, they don't see female, they see money always. So, you know, I mean, and even with business, once I got my business coach, like it just for me, I felt like mentors 
was my greatest, most valuable asset or resource um, in terms of growing in multiple ways. So I, that's what I would say. I don't really have like a one specific book or anything like that. Okay, that works. Well, thank you so much for your time, Star. Oh, absolutely. I really, really enjoyed you. Thank you for having me. I was I was very excited for today, by the way. <laughs> <laughs> I'm glad. <laughs> I was. Thank you for listening to Not The Wifey Type, the podcast. If you love the show, make sure to subscribe so you'll know when new episodes drop and rate and review so others will know how much you love the show too. If you want to keep up with me personally, you can follow me on Instagram at Not The Wifey Type. Until next time, I'm reminding you to belong to yourself. <laughs>